Hey everyone, there is some strong language in today's episode, including a couple of F-bombs. I've not beeped anything out, so I thought I should let you know about it beforehand. Hey everybody, today's show is brought to you by Hoopsters, a basketball-themed board game only available at hoopsters.store. I like playing board games because it gives me a chance to connect with my kids or my friends, and for me, the best games are a lot of fun, but they're easy to learn, right? I don't like checking the rules on the inside of the box lid every other move. Great games require some strategy, but also a little bit of luck, and they don't take forever to complete a game. I'm not a fan of those five-hour Monopoly sessions. So I can tell you firsthand that Hoopsters is all of these things. You can play a quick game in 15 minutes, or longer one in 30. It brings all of the thrill of basketball together with the strategy of backgammon. And I just can't tell you enough about how much fun it is. Each set is handcrafted here in Central Ohio, so head to hoopsters.store, and if there aren't any sets available, you can drop in your email address and we'll let you know as soon as we have some more. That's hoopsters.store. Now on to the show. Hey everybody, this is Pete in almost real time. I have to admit the latter half of season two has had some delays to it. The writing's all done, but finding time for the recording and production has been a little bit difficult. As my son prepares to graduate from high school and we have relatives coming in from out of state and I have to spend most of my time until that day making the fake house, as they say. On uh, Friday night after work, I repainted the deck and I finished at about 8.30 and I came inside and cleaned myself up and at 9 o'clock, an unexpected thunderstorm rolled through and literally washed away my work. Man, I was mad. My last episode, and if you're a newsletter subscriber and listen to the private episode that went out explaining the big lie, giving the backstory to my episode about millennials, both tread kind of political lines, and so I wanted to follow it up with something that just purely silly. So I ended up revising and rewriting an essay about an Aerosmith song that I originally wrote back in 2012 for the website columbuscalling.com. Hopefully you'll find the song and my analysis of it as funny as I do. And once again, a shout out and thanks go to Chip Midnight, the publisher of columbuscalling.com, for being cool with me performing it here. So if you live in Columbus, Ohio, and you're interested in the local music scene, I recommend you check out columbuscalling.com. Let's get to the show. This is Season 2, Episode 9, Love in an Elevator. There are two things you may have learned about me if you're a regular listener to the show. The first is that I spend a lot of time thinking about memories and memoir and how our memories work and change over time. That's an obvious one. The second is that a good portion of my brain has held on to all manner of late 1980s heavy metal information despite the fact that this should be prime content for my brain to prune. What can I say? The stuff that moves you when you're 17 tends to stick around for life. So it was that I was driving to work last week, and the radio station I was listening to played a song called Love in an Elevator by Aerosmith. A few days after that, it was on during my drive home. So I assume it's in rotation for this 80s radio station that I've been listening to lately. And if you'd reached puberty by 1989 and or were within 50 feet of a radio, 
You probably know this song. It's terrible, but for some odd reason, we loved Love in an Elevator, sending it very quickly to number five on the charts. This song was the first hit from Pump, Aerosmith's 10th album, and the first album after they very famously sobered up in the late 1980s. It was released right before I went away to college. We had this album at WLHD, which was a campus radio station where I had a show from 2 to 3 p.m. weekdays my freshman year in 1989. The LHD stands for Lincoln Hall Dorm, which is the name of the building where this outfit was run from. I was qualified to have this radio program because, one, I had paid my tuition, and two, I saw the flyer and showed up to the meeting where they were giving away shows. The station manager, a wizened sophomore named AJ, as I recall, showed me how to cue a vinyl record so that it played a song right when you started it up. And that was pretty much all it took to release me on the airwaves. Except the station didn't technically use airwaves. Instead, AJ told me, the station was sent over the power lines to all of the buildings on the East Green. If you plugged a radio in one of these buildings, you could pick up the station. I lived in Reed Hall, two buildings over from Lincoln, and I could never hear it. But AJ assured me that this was all for reals, and as proof, he played me a promo from the comedian Sam Kinison, who had visited campus the previous year. Sam Kinison's act was based around him screaming, Oh! Oh! as a way to warn you to never get married. I'm going around the country, I'm trying to get as many people as I can not to get married. I promise never to get married. I've been married, and I'm just trying to help. Jim okay. <laughs> Harris never been married? You never been married? <laughs> What's your name? Michael? Well, Michael, if you ever think about getting married, if you ever think you've met the right woman, you want to settle down, change your life, you do me a favor, Mike? Remember this face. Because if you get married, Mike, that's going to be your fucking face every day. It's the face of every married man. And back in the 1980s, we found this pretty funny. AJ, wise sophomore that he was, had taken a small tape recorder to Kinnison's show and convinced him to say, This is WLHG. Oh, oh, oh. And if they got Sam Kinnison to do a promo, my 18-year-old self reasoned, then everything here must be pretty legit. So for an hour every afternoon, I would sit in the booth and play songs, breaking them up every few minutes by playing the Sam Kinison promo or delivering gems like, Warrant could be the next Aerosmith if they stop worrying about their look and focus on the music. If I wanted to smoke a cigarette, which I was starting to do back then, I would play the 15-minute long song, Freebird, and step outside using half of a brick to keep the door propped open since I didn't have a key to Lincoln Hall. In addition to Aerosmith, I also remember playing songs from Bob Dylan's Oh Mercy album, which was also new that year. And I remember an album from a metal band called Carnivore, which had a track on it called Jack Daniels and Pizza, which was actually just a recording of some guy throwing up for a minute or so. The lyric sites online charitably refer to this cut as an instrumental. I never played that track on my show, 
But I do remember calling the phone in the DJ booth throughout the week and requesting that other DJs play it on their shows. Ha ha me. It must have been a pretty strange hour of radio, as I think about it, and as I'm sure those of you who happen to plug your radios into outlets in Lincoln Hall Dorm in Athens, Ohio from two to three weekdays in the fall of 1989 can attest. I didn't care, though. I was 18, I had my own dorm room and my own radio show, almost drive time, I would tell you, which didn't make much sense because freshmen weren't allowed to have cars on campus at that time. And even if they did, the cars would have to run like a super long electric wire from a radio in their car to an outlet in Lincoln Hall dorm in order to get my show. Also, I had just gotten my braces off, which is something I wish I was making up, but I am not. I do remember playing a lot of tracks from Pump, especially What It Takes... and Janie's Got a Gun, which I hailed to my zero listeners, or possibly my one listener, because AJ said he was always listening. I hailed this song for its innovative use of the wind gong. Although looking back, it likely did not register with me that this is a song about victims of incest. Love in an Elevator was the first and most popular song from Pump at that time. But I played it exactly once on my show, and then I swore to never play it again. The reason why is that it opens with a spoken word segment, or overdub as they call it in the business, after Def Leppard's Glinton Glinton Glauden Globen, which is spoke before the song Rock of Ages, and sounds like this. I'd say that the Love in an Elevator overdub is probably one of the best-known heavy metal ballad spoken word overdub song openers around. The bit starts with a ding sound to indicate an elevator has arrived. Then we hear a young woman's voice say, Second floor, hardware, children's wear, ladies' lingerie. Second floor, hardware, children's wear, ladies' lingerie. Oh, good morning, Mr. Tyler. Going... Down. <laughs> then there's a short pause, and then Steven Tyler kind of gives a skeevy-sounding laugh, and then the band launches into the song. This bit is suggestive. It's supposed to suggest that the Mr. Tyler character is going to go down on the elevator operator. This is mostly suggested in the short pause she puts in between going and down, and by his creepy laugh, and also by the fact that It was late 80s hair metal people. Okay, just trust me on this one. She's talking about sex. But is this why I refuse to play the song? Absolutely not. At the time, I can't say that I had anything against people having sex in elevators. Do people do this, by the way? And if so, is there a Mile High Club-like nickname for it? Like maybe a Between the Floors Club? While the idea of love in an elevator didn't seem to bother 18-year-old me, I can't say whether I'm for or against it now that I'm in my 40s, because mostly I just don't want to think about it. But back when I was 18, I was all for anything that involved even the slightest possibility that someone might even mention the word sex. You'd just name the time in the elevator and I'd be there. Although, if technically the time was between 2 and 3 on a weekday in the fall of 1989, I would have to put Freebird on first. Heck, I would have been up for love on an escalator, for that matter. Or on a funicular. No, the reason that I inexplicably turned against this song was this. Elevator Operators. 
because of my vast life experiences leading up to the fall of 1989, comprised of 18 years during which I grew up in a Cleveland suburb, got braces on and then off, and ended up with my very own almost drive-time radio show for a radio station that only worked on radios plugged into the electric wires in Lincoln Hall dorm, I had never, ever encountered an elevator operator. So being 18 and knowing everything, I decided there was no longer any such thing. I mean, what was this song set in the 1950s? I would derisively ask nobody out loud as I sat alone each afternoon in the empty radio station booth, but no one was there to hear me. And, to be honest, I was starting to suspect the radio station was actually just AJ's dorm room. And if so, how come the elevator operators I had seen portrayed on television up to that point were all wrinkly old men in funny caps? Is that who you're going to have sex with, Steven Tyler? I'm sorry, Aerosmith, 18-year-old me declared. If you're going to tell me that people have sex in elevators, then you're going to have to give me a more believable scenario than this. And please, listeners, keep in mind, this was well before we had something like the internet, where we could just type in, are there still elevator operators? I didn't stop there in my criticism of love in an elevator, however, because even if there was still an elevator operator somewhere who happened to be a hot woman who wanted to have sex with Steven Tyler, I hesitate to point out that, one, the Mr. Tyler character is boarding the elevator on the second floor, giving him what? One, maybe two floors if there's a basement? Tops to go down? I'm pretty sure even my 18-year-old self couldn't have taken care of business that quickly. Okay, I probably could have, but you get my point, right? And we should also point out that they're in a frickin' department store, which is conceivably busier than, say, an old office building or something. And since this mythical department store sees fit to place hardware, children's clothing, and lingerie on the same floor, sounds like a Sears to me, it's likely that there are a lot of confused shoppers milling about trying to find the dressing rooms, which I maintain would have been a much better place for Mr. Tyler and Miss Elevator Operator to go have sex. Of course, love in a dressing room seems to lack a little something as far as song titles go. So that's why I took a stand against one of the more popular songs of the fall of 1989. I told myself that a guy has got to stand up for what's right after all. Now that we have the internet, however, we can dig a little bit deeper into this mystery. For example, I learned this evening that there are still a handful of old elevators out there that require operators, and thus a handful of elevator operators still out there. Of course, if you run an image search of elevator operators, let's just say none of them resemble the elevator operator depicted on the cover sleeve of the Love in an Elevator 45. Uh, kids, a uh, 45 was the MP3 of my day. It was a little record that had one song on each side and spun around the turntable 45 times per minute. It was replaced by a far superior technology called a casingle. The music video for Love in an Elevator is a beautifully hot mess. And not just because Stephen Tyler appears to be wearing a hat that he stole from an English woman who was on her way to high tea. The elevator operator is played by Brandy Brandt, although hers is not the voice on the record. Brandy Brandt was a Playboy centerfold of the time and married to Nikki Six of Motley Crue and is allegedly the subject of their song, Angela. Because I guess in the world of late 80s heavy metal, Angela is a well-known nickname for Brandy. Now in the wind, Angela, Angela. 
in the video, she welcomes Mr. Tyler into an elevator that's full of people. What? It's like they didn't even look at their own 45 sleeve cover. No way is Steven Tyler going to go down with that kind of audience around. The video, which I cannot recommend highly enough, goes on to show us a wide range of weirdness at the department store and all sorts of oddness in and around the elevator. To such an extent, you begin to suspect the entire song is maybe being ironic, which, if you dive into the lyrics at all, you hope, for the sake of humanity, is true. Jackie's in the elevator, lingerie second floor. She said, can I see you later and love you just a little more? I kinda hope we get stuck. Nobody gets out alive. She said, I'll show you how to fax in the mailroom, honey, and have you home by five. Now believe it or not, these two verses are arguably most substantive of the song. They give us a name, Jackie, of the woman in the elevator, who apparently wants to love Mr. Tyler a little bit more, and also show him how to use the fax machine in the mailroom. I'll bet he probably drove her crazy asking her to fax stuff for him all the time. That's what that's all about. Okay, okay, that's not what that's all about at all. You should know, late 80s heavy metal, the line is really about mismashing the word fax for the word fuck in the mailroom. Because at the end of the day, or in this case, when the elevator hits the ground and the doors open up, this is really just another song about doing it that lets the musicians show off their chops. Accept that as its premise, as most of us seem to have done, and you can enjoy it. I don't know why 1989 me wasn't able to understand this, but at least it's dawning on 40s me, and in an oddly symmetric twist, Steven Tyler was 42 when this song came out, which may be why I'm only now starting to get it. And apologies to my wife and my children, who are clearly doomed. Brandy Brandt went on to have three children with Nikki Six, though they are now divorced. She also had a few small roles, including an appearance on Married with Children and a role as, quote, glamorous gyno-American in Citizen Toxie, colon, The Toxic Avenger 4. He's battled all forms of evil and won every time. And now he's returned to face his greatest enemy, himself. Oh my god! It's the Toxic Avenger! Jarmaville's favorite hideous uniform! Oh, that's a good one. In 2007, her name comes up in connection with a cocaine bust in Australia but she wasn't extradited there until 2014 when she was sentenced for up to six years. According to a Twitter account I found, she had become a maker of cakes and custom jewelry, which seems like a pretty good career path for a former elevator operator. The Twitter account, by the way, it stops abruptly at the end of 2013, presumably when she was extradited down under, then picks right back up again in 2017 after what I think was her parole. Occasionally, she'll post auctions for signed copies of the Playboy magazine that she appeared in, including a 1990 issue on which she shared the cover with Donald Trump. You just can't make this stuff up, people. I have to admit, when I saw the cocaine bust results appear in my search, 
I wondered if I had stumbled on to a lesser-known Tawny Katayan type of story. Tawny Katayan, heavy metal fans will tell you, was the young woman seen writhing about on the hood of a jaguar in White Stakes music video for the 1987 song, Here I Go Again. After which, she married and quickly divorced Whitesnake lead singer Dave Coverdale, and then married former Cleveland Indian pitcher Chuck Finley, whom she was found guilty of abusing after she kicked him repeatedly in the face with her high heels. I can go on and on about Brandy Brandt, Tawny Katayan similarities, but other than my friend Chip, who knows more about heavy metal than any other person in the known universe, I don't know that you'd find it as entertaining as I do. Let's just say that I'm amazed they never got matched up in an episode of Celebrity Boxing. And also, if you're going to do an image search of either Miss Brandt or Miss Katayan, you should probably not be at work at the time. I'm just saying. And also... Sorry, boss. The internet has also informed me that the voice of the woman in the pre-Lovin' Elevator overdub on the album, not in the video, belonged to a woman named Catherine Epps, E-P-P-S. I would have known that back in 1989 if I had read the liner notes, which I didn't do since Freebird was on and I was probably outside smoking and hoping that AJ didn't suddenly show up. Miss Epps is a much trickier entity to find any information about. Search for her and you get back LinkedIn results for a lot of different EPSs. Discographies turn up only this one credit for Lovin' an Elevator. IMDB turns up only one appearance in a documentary called Aerosmith, The Making of Pump. The internet, it seems, is unable to tell us very much at all about the real voice of the elevator operator from the crazy department store. And Aerosmith, The Making of Pump, it's only available on DVD or VHS. No Netflix, no Hulu, no Amazon. Okay, I just ordered it. Give me a second. Okay, that was more than a second. But luckily, I was able to order from a reputable seller on Amazon for $2.10, Aerosmith, The Making of Pump. And before we get on to the critical issue of Miss Epps, let me note that I was truly and pleasantly surprised at how engaging this film was, especially given that it's in 4x3 and shot primarily with a VHS camera. But between this senior portrait-style infinite white background that they used for their talking head interviews, or the bits where Steven Tyler waxes poetic on how his Korg piano has 99 presets. So I get myself this new age stuff called a Korg. Okay, it's a piano, it's got like 99 presets, different things, everything from uh, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir to uh, slap bass. The film was enjoyable both for its content and for its perfect snapshot of the late 1980s. As I mentioned, Pump was Aerosmith's first album after getting sober, a fact they make some hay of during the documentary. And by hay, I mean, the musicians give some decent insights on how different the act of creation is for them when they're not under the influence. Tyler says, You do it by pretending, by letting the kid out. That's why drugs played such a big role in Aerosmith and me, and especially my creativity. Now I just really let the kid out a lot more. And when I pretend, I go for it. If you pretend, you're there. 
Little kids do it, and they're there. They're in the room quiet for hours. What are you doing? I'm playing with Jackie, and there's no Jackie. You know? But Jackie's in the elevator. Lingerie, second floor. She said, can I see you later? And love you just a little more. If you're following his logic in this soundbite, and again, I highly recommend you do not, he has an internal little kid who has an imaginary friend named Jackie who, as it turns out, becomes the elevator operator in the song. I'm uh, being generous with that becomes to suggest that time must have passed and Jackie, and Jackie doesn't appear in the elevator until, you know, she's actually grown up. Because otherwise, that would mean Steven Tyler was having sex with a... Yikes. What I found particularly interesting is that as Aerosmith tries to whittle their 20 or so songs down to one album's worth of material, they know straight off that they have two surefire hits. Janie's Got a Gun and Love in an Elevator. At one point, Tyler is taking a phone interview from the recording studio, and he's talking up Love in an Elevator before it's even been released. It's like he's got the formula nailed, and he just needs to let the genie out of the box on that one. Or, more accurately, out of the elevator. But as to the overdub and the mysterious Catherine Epps, who steps out of the 1940s to run the elevator at the most oddly organized department store in history, well, I've got a fuzzy screen capture of her from the film that I'll put on Instagram this week and in the show notes. It's from the exact moment when Steven Tyler, who was voice directing her from the side, suggests that she place a short pause in between going and down, which I feel pretty safe in calling the pause heard round the heavy metal world. Going down? That's it, even slower. Going... That's it, going down. Yeah, make a stop. Perfect! A few scenes later, we get to see the band in the sound booth, listening to various takes on the line and debating the merits of each. Oh, good morning, Mr. Tyler. Going down? That's really... That's a... Going down is just too close. Her voice is almost cracking like she's nervous, which is good. Yeah. Later, a sound engineer remarks, This is the strangest overdub I've ever done, but he's quickly corrected by Steven Tyler, who says, No, the greatest. This is the weirdest overdub I've ever done. <laughs> it's the greatest. <laughs> the film closes with Steven Tyler telling a more or less edited version of the story, which he says inspired Love in an Elevator. The clip gets set up for us by drummer Joey Kramer, who clarifies for us that most people like sex, that lead singer Steven Tyler can be counted among such people, and that due to his rock star status, he gets to have a lot of it. Tyler then, through his raspy laughs, tells us that he was with two young ladies in a hotel hot tub, at which time it seemed best to head up to his room. This is the infamous elevator ride, he says, that inspired the song. So we got in the elevator, scantily clad, I might add, and uh, suddenly I dropped my room key and I had to get down on the floor and pick it up. And you know that commercial where the chocolate meets the peanut butter? Ha ha ha. Mmm. Our heads met. The other girl, by the way, was pushing the buttons of every floor because she was totally inebriated. And um, suddenly, without notice, the doors opened and we were in the lobby and she was buns up and kneeling. I was wheeling and a dealing. Yeah. So I had to write it down, right? Memoirs. That's my transcription of what he says in the film, and in writing it down, it loses the mixture of disbelief and delight that he has in his telling of it. And the funny thing is, Aerosmith, the making of Pump, ends there. I mean, the film just ends with Steven Tyler saying, 
memoirs. It's a bit abrupt, but as I thought about it, I'm not sure how else they could have ended it. How are you supposed to react to a story like this? The editor probably gave it a good deal of thought and then decided, fuck it, memoirs, that's the end. Which, in the end, is probably why I wrote this essay to begin with. A song came on the radio that brought me back to the fall of 1989 and made me remember how you can only listen to music like you did when you were 17, once. Because the world has a lot more lying in store for you between elevator operators and married with children. So enjoy it while you can. Memoirs. Okay, so that was a silly episode about a silly heavy metal song. I do have one huge correction I have to make, uh, and I only discovered this. I originally wrote that essay back in 2012, but while turning it into a podcast, I discovered that Aerosmith, The Making of Pump, in fact, does not end with Steven Tyler saying memoirs. There's some sort of scratch or imperfection on my $2 DVD that was causing it to end. It actually goes on for another 20 minutes or so going through some of the other hits from that album. The whole thing's on YouTube in various parts if you're interested in it, which I do know was not the case in 2012. Okay, everybody, I'll be back in just a couple weeks with a new episode. Hope you're all doing well. Good times. Pete Brown Says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is the work of Creative Nonfiction Audio, written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. Some music in the show comes from Brian Hake and Kevin Davison, and the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by their band, Delicious. Other audio may have been sourced from the websites audionautics.com, incompetech.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. Most pieces are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes at PeteBrownSays.com for complete attribution. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, thanks for your time listening today. Good times, everyone. Once there was a time